uh, there, or I think I had a coffee maker, but I didn't know how to make coffee. So when I had people over, I said, you want some coffee? Yeah, good. Do you know how to make it? Kind of thing. So I asked her, she came over and I said, hey, Eleanor, can I offer you something to drink? Um, water, uh, milk, or, and then she goes, milk. And I thought, fantastic. And then I turn around and I walk into the kitchen and the milk's on the counter and has been since morning. I don't know what's going on in my head, but I figure, oh, maybe she won't notice. Boop, bloop, bloop, bloop. And I give, her <laughs> I give her a cup of milk, and she goes, gets that white mustache, and she goes, hmm, warm milk. <laughs> it was just so gross and nasty. I'm not sure what I was thinking, giving her lukewarm milk. And I've been there before, too, when I was working in a, in a, a food shop. I remember I, I was in the meat department, and I could hardly wait till my break because I was on this kick of, of cold, cold milk. I love cold milk. I used to, anyway. And here I was, could hardly wait for a break, and finally it was my turn. I take off my apron, I walk over to the dairy department, I grab a milk, and I crack that baby open even before I pay for it. Maybe this is what happened. And I start sucking it back, and then all of a sudden, in comes the clunk, 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 big chunks of nastified milk. What do you do? I'm in a department store. I'm in this huge Safeway kind of deal, right? So I just rip behind the uh, produce section, and there's this big garbage room, and there you can imagine what happened as I got rid of all this nasty milk. Nothing is worse than lukewarm milk or chunky, chunky milk, right? Well, even at our home, we, uh, our primary heat source is uh, wood. So I'm forever collecting wood, chopping wood, making kindling, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, my wife likes it warm in the morning, and sometimes I still haven't cranked up that fire yet. So I figure, okay, it's time to turn on the, 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 the heater. So I go downstairs, I flick on the main switch to the furnace, gas furnace, and then I go back to the thermostat, turn it on. It goes click, 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 and it shows the little fire on it. So I'm going right on. I'm taking care, good care of my wife. And I was watching this and watching this and watching this as nothing is happening. I go downstairs, open the closet. My pilot's going, this makes no sense. So I finally take everything off of it, and I look at some of the wiring. I phone one of my hookups saying, what's going on? And then I go to my other hookup, which is YouTube, and I start looking, okay, what is, what is this thing's problem? right? So I don't know how long it took, and I tried everything. I changed the batteries because I've been fooled before by one of these digital thermostats. I've done everything. So finally, I take off the thermostat thingy. I don't know if this is good or not, so just bear with me. There's two wires, and I put those two wires together. Just kidding. Uh, I just put those two wires together, and then all of a sudden, I heard my my furnace kick in, and good news. So then, through all of that troubleshooting, I realized that it's not the furnace switch, it's not my pilot light, it's not my batteries, but it was actually my thermostat. So finally, I broke down and through my Mennonite-ness, went and bought a cheap thermostat, put it on, and just yesterday, bam, I started heating the place with gas furnace, huh? But one thing that's interesting to me and in all of these situations I'm talking about is how important thermostats are and thermometers. Thermostats are so terribly important because if they don't work, you're not going to keep your milk cool, so you're going to have nasty milk all the time, and you're not going to keep your wife happy and warm if your thermostat's broken in your house and you don't get the furnace going. These are important things. But I also thought, what does this have to do with our spiritual lives? What happens if your thermostat in your life, the thermostat in your relationships, the thermostat in your relationship with God is kaput? You're not hot, or cold, you're just kind of, 
And I think that is what Nehemiah, in our actually our last sermon of this huge ser- series that we've been doing, we're in Nehemiah chapter 13. I'll try and catch up some of you that have not been here before, just to make sure you know what's going on with Nehemiah. But what happens in Nehemiah chapter 13 is I think the thermostat gets broken and Nehemiah comes on the scene again and does some troubleshooting. So before we go, let us pray together. Lord, thank you for today. And I, I'm really thankful for this uh, amazing weather you've given us. Yeah, it's rainy today, but yesterday, wow, what a gift of beautiful sunshine. And I thank you for your creativity all around us. I thank you we can look out at the ocean, look at the sunshine, look at the wind and the leaves of autumn. And Lord, you are in charge of it all. And then we look toward one another here, and you've gifted us differently. You've made us all different and unique, and you love each one of us. This morning, I would ask that you'd give us a tune-up. You'd do some troubleshooting. If there's a relationship in our lives this morning, if there is kind of a non-communication with you, Father, if there's something going on where we're not trusting you or we're having trouble having faith because something physical is going on with us or mental or emotional, help us, Lord, to to open up the old thermostat and allow you to do some work in our lives this morning. Father, if you've got to change the batteries, if you've got to change the thermostat, if our pilot light has been blown out, I don't know. But I ask that this morning you would help us to submit ourselves to the Almighty God, who even uh, Tennyson has chatted about this morning, that we, we can have this friendship with you, but also this deep respect for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, you have the power to do incredible stuff in our lives. And yet you have also granted us some power to kind of leave you out of our lives or walk with you as you want to disciple us and make us a Christ one. So go before us this morning. Help us to glean from Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here have your Bibles. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. So our whole sermon series has been uh, moving forward together because out of Nehemiah chapter 13, we are chapter the whole book, we have seen a guy that had a cushy job. He really didn't need to get involved, but he heard the bad news and was interested. And we see that his homeland, Jerusalem, had been broken down. They still had no uh, wall guarding them, giving them protection, identity, and community. So this broke his heart. He prayed to God, and through all sorts of really neat God circumstances. He's released from his job, which is a cupbearer, really cool job of tasting wine and great food so that if he didn't die, then the king would eat it. He takes off, surveys all the damage, brings together all the people right from the goldsmiths to the pharmacists to the kid on the street to the, the, the housewife. They build up this wall doing something that everybody can contribute to gives them identity, gives them protection, gives them this newfound faith in the Almighty God and a beautiful community together. They had all sorts of opposition from within and without. They had enemies that would mock them out. They had enemies that would threaten them. They had enemies that would send letters and have them read out loud publicly so everybody would start to doubt Nehemiah and his leadership, doubt God and his faithfulness. But as you know, within 52 days, that wall was built And now in Nehemiah chapter 13, and actually in Nehemiah 9 and 10, we have seen that they open up the word of God, they get out the old dusty scrolls, and Ezra there, he's a preacher, and they blow it it off, and everybody stands, and there he is standing by a pulpit. Everybody stands, and they begin to weep as they hear the word of God. They're just hearing it. 
And Ezra is a preacher that's always been ready. He's been studying, he's been reading, and here's his time to shine. He opens the scrolls, and the people just respond by weeping. And it was kind of cool, because at this point, we see that Nehemiah and others say, stop weeping. This is a time of celebration, and they celebrate the Feast of Booths. So what they do is they remember God's faithfulness in the past. They remember it way back in the exiling. And now they also remember his faithfulness as he's brought them back to Jerusalem and given them community, identity, and protection once again. So here's incredible stuff going on here. So now we go to re, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. And some of this you're going to go, didn't we talk about this last week? And yeah, we did. But it's kind of interesting because last week we went from Nehemiah 9, last part of Nehemiah 9 and 10, and 13 says a lot of the same stuff. And if it's repeated, there's probably a reason why it's repeated. It's pretty important. So let's check it out. Nehemiah chapter 13, 1 to 11. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water and had hired Balaam to call a uh, curse down on them. So this is a historical thing. This, these other tribes uh, had not been helpful whatsoever. And in fact, they were intimidated by the Israelites. So they actually had this preacher by hire and they paid him off to actually do a curse on the people here. Um, our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. So when the people heard this law, they excluded, they excluded from Israel all who were f- of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the, the priest, had been in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Who's Tobiah? He's an enemy. Remember Tobiah, Sanballat, these guys? They were actual enemies. They were doing everything they could to stop the building of the wall. So they were absolute enemies of it. And here we see Eliashib, the priest, had been in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, the guy that's trying to trip up and stop the construction. And he had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. He's given, them a ho- he's given them a hotel room in the temple. The enemy. This is incredible. But while all this was going on, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib, the priest, had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased, and I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods. I threw it out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, you got to remember the Levites were kind of like a whole bunch of Tennysons and the worship teams. They're set aside to thoughtfully, constantly remind us of God's presence and lead us into worship. That was their vocation. Okay, so they were, that was their job. So what would happen is all the other people would give tithes and offerings so that the Tennysons and the worship team could eat and they didn't have to go work in the fields. 
I had learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them there at their posts. Stationed there at their posts. So we see here that there's trouble in the hen house here. And then later on in, in verses 15 to 18, we see that Nehemiah rebukes the Jews. He stands up to the nobles. He stands up to the governors or the people that were supposed to be governing the city. And he rebukes them for letting trade go on during the Sabbath. And reminded them that that was one of the very reasons they were sent off to captivity in the first place. God had said, you work all you want on six days. Have a day of rest. Have a year of rest. Have the year of jubilee. But what were they doing? Just kind of like today, we milk every day. We want to make one more buck. We want to get a little bit more out of this piece of land. You know what I'm saying? And that's what was happening. And God says, no, I mean it. And because of things like this, he sent them off into exile. While here, he reminds them that they were sent into captivity because of that. And now he posts guards at the gates to stop foreigners from coming to make deals during the day of rest. So he actually has people posted at the gates looking out for anybody that might want to wheel and deal during the Sabbath. He's taking this very seriously. Why? Because he read it in the Bible. Okay? He read it in the Bible. Therefore, he's going to do it. Verses 23 to 28 is kind of funny. Nehemiah even gets so worked up. Let me turn over to chapter 13, verses 23 and on. Uh, he, he saw men and women of Judah married and intermarried and all sorts going on. He heard different languages. And the big deal was when there was a bunch of intermarriage going on at this point, what would happen is I would marry some Ammonite or Moabite and it constantly happened. There's constant proof in the Bible that when I did that, not only would I now try and worship Jehovah God, the real God, but I would kind of try and bring subtly sometimes and sometimes pretty obviously whatever... God, small g, my wife was worshiping. And then all of a sudden there was just this big mix and impure religion and no longer was I worshiping God anymore for his faithfulness. I was all over the map. So he heard this and in verses 23 to 28, Nehemiah actually beats up a couple guys to get their attention. It's kind of funny, I think. He, it's a commentary. He actually beats some of them up and he plucks out their hair. Huh? How's that for church discipline? How would you like that? We find something up with you, Ken, I'd like to see you here, and I'm going to start plucking out your hair. Not for me, thank you very much. If you saw all of my brothers, and yes, I have six of them, I'm the only one with hair. This is very precious, okay? And that's why I don't cut it, if you're wondering. Okay. So, verse 23 to 28, he beats up a couple guys, plucks out their hair to get a point, a point across to them that they're not supposed to intermarry at this point, which caused the Israelites to worship other gods in the first place. So I'm hoping that as we even see this, this sermon or this piece of scripture that's so old, just because it's old doesn't mean it's not really applicable today. I'm wondering if there's stuff in the sermon today that will give you an honest look at your spiritual thermometer or your spiritual thermostat and that there'll be points in here that'll help us realize, okay, are we hot? Are we cold? Are we lukewarm? Is there areas in my life where I've been backsliding or I haven't even been maintaining properly and no longer am I growing in my relationship with God and others? 
The free church, which we're a part of, the Evangelical Free Church of Canada, which is also linked with Trinity Western University, which Ken was uh, hinting toward in his prayer, uh, one of the things they love to say is, where stands it written? So when we come across another theological thing or when we come across something that culture throws at us, we go, okay, what does the word of God say about it? We say, where stands it written? Because let me tell you, there's a temptation to go with whatever culture has for us because sometimes it's hard to stand up for what is right and true. But we'd like to say, where stands it written? Show me, show me. And another thing they like to say is their model in essentials, unity. So in essentials, unity. So yeah, we'll die for inspiration of scripture. We'll die for the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to non-essentials, we, we seek charity. So some of you will come from uh, Dutch backgrounds and Mennonite backgrounds. You all have different ways of baptizing. And we just go, yeah. We practice believer's baptism and we get you real wet. We dunk you totally in. But we don't make a big deal of that because we feel that that is a non-essential, how it's done. Baptism's a big deal, but not how it's done. And then the last thing, so I said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. So love. And in all things, Jesus Christ. But in all things, Jesus Christ. That's what the free church tries to do. And that's really what Trinity's trying to do. And I think that's what Nehemiah is trying to do. Where stands it written? Where stands it written? I think Nehemiah is also trying to say an essential is unity and non-essential is charity and all things Jesus Christ. So it seems that he had the same model. So it's interesting because as we come to Nehemiah 13, like I've hinted to you before, we already talked about some of this stuff in 9 and 10. And now all of a sudden years have passed. He was back with the Persian king. He comes back and he sees some of the very same things that he's addressed in Nehemiah 9 and 10. And so we have a case of what we call today probably backsliding. So we think we're good with God, but we haven't maintained a relationship whatsoever, and we've slid back. Let me tell you, if I said to my wife on my wedding day, baby, I love you, do you think that's enough that I don't have to tell her that again? I don't have to take her on a date again? Obviously not, right? You got to work at your relationships. You got to work at your relationships. I got to continually hang out with my wife, take her on dates, and, and, and... Describe to her why I love her in the first place. It's a big deal. And I need to hear the same from her. It's the same thing in your relationship with God. If you're thinking, say, oh, Lord, I love you. And I said it once, hope you remember. You know, like, what is that? That's not building a relationship. And you know that if you say it once to your wife and you think you can maintain that, you got a level of 76% love in your marriage and you're not going to say it again. It's not going to stay at 76% because time goes on and then bills hit, kids hit, financial crisis hits, job changes hit, stress hits. It's, it's going to go down if you don't put in time and effort in your marriage relationship. The same thing is with our relationship with God. So there's warnings that we have in scripture that says be careful that you have a good temperature setting and that you're constantly splitting wood or you're constantly throwing a log on the fire to keep it hot. So Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's really giving us a warning to be careful about a haughty spirit or be careful about pride because you'll go down. You'll backslide. John in Revelation 2 verse 4 says, yet I hold this against you, he says to one of the churches. You have forsaken your first love. 
Some of us have done that in our marriages. We just are madly in love with our wives or husbands, but then all of a sudden somebody at the office gets our attention or perhaps the office itself gets our attention and we love our work more than our relationship. He says to another church in Revelation, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Now I spit you out of my mouth. Just like nasty milk, it's gotta go. That's what Jesus is also saying. Some of us that think we have a relationship with God and don't really, he says, that's gross. That's, that's like curdled milk in my mouth. There's a haunting verse to me in, in James. It's talking about some of you believe in God, but let me tell you that even the demons believe there is a God and shudder. That's interesting to me because demons believe that and shudder. Some of us believe it and don't shudder. The big point here is we need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ to connect to God. All these songs that we were singing that Tennyson and the worshiping have chosen, fantastic, talking about not our righteousness, nothing that Steve has done to get in the good books with God. It's all what Jesus has done on the cross. And I just go, God, I need you. I need you. I've tried so much on my own. I can't do it. I need you. And that's the first step of initiating a relationship with the Almighty God. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 4, you who are trying to be justified by law, so you're trying to work your way in with God, doing cool stuff and good works, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What's grace? It's a gift of God. So again, if you're kind of like me, you try and get in with God by doing good stuff and helping old ladies across the street, well, that's nice, but that's not a relationship with Christ. In fact, I'm going to say that when you have a relationship with Christ, that stuff is an overflow, that you have this joy and you have this newfound freedom that now you're really looking out for old ladies and helping them cross the street. But I'm just saying that's not what gets you in with God. That's a response of being in with God. That make sense? Sorry to wake you the prophet uh, Isaiah says in 59.2, he says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. So to me, even in Isaiah, he's saying there's a maintenance requirement to our relationship with God. You just can't do whatever you want and also, oh God, by the way, can you? And he's just going, well, wait a second. It's not like he's forgotten you. He still knows you very well. But it's important that we continue to have this relationship and work on this relationship with God. So some foundational groundwork as we jump into Nehemiah is, first of all, I think it's really important that we see that the church is Christ's bride. And I, I want to try and link this, again, use that spiritual needle to bring the New and the Old Testament together. The church is Christ's bride. Sometimes when I'm sitting in my office and I have a premarital uh, counseling session, I try and even look at the physical relationship that they're going to enjoy later on when they get married. I'm trying to help them to see why they need purity now. But if we just look at it as a physical act between one human and another human, I don't think there's a ton of power in that. But when, and I'm still working on this, but when we realize that there is even in Ephesians when it talks about this purity and all of a sudden, and I'm talking about uh, the church and Christ, this is a great mystery. Now I'm going, what is that verse or that phrase doing in that verse? 
And I'm blown away because I think very much in our relationship, in our, as we have grown together as husband and wife, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, and then obviously physically, that I think when those things are firing on all eight cylinders, we're getting the closest we can on here on earth to what, it's, what we're supposed to have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. If I just look at my wife and I marry her because I have needs and because I have wants and because I, it's nice to have a partner, yeah. but if I realize that when that lady walks down the aisle, my job and my calling and my desire is for her to become all she can be in Jesus Christ. That means I'll make sacrifices so she can become all she can be. So I want to know her dreams. I want to know her vision. I want to know what she wants as a wife, as somebody in the workplace, and as a mom. And that takes sacrifice. But guess what? She does the same for me. We used to say in the good old days, you know, marriage takes 50-50. It's a contract. No, it's 100-100. It's 100-100. Because there's times where I'm lame, and she's got to put in 100%. It's not 50. It's not going to work. And there's times where she's just a little less than 100% when I got to put in 100%. It's really important that we both go at it hardcore. The church is Christ's bride. The significance of the temple gates being the center of the community, this was the house of God. So it's really important that as we saw, and I already told you that people were trying to get into Jerusalem and mess with their Sabbath, trying to mess with their gods and trying to mess with business and all that stuff. They posted, they posted people and guards at the gates to make sure no garbage came in, no people came in that didn't have what's good in mind for Jerusalem. The same thing is very true in our marriages, don't you think? We have to have guards. We have to have people posted. You got to be on guard. There's some times where I'm sharing in premarital counseling some of the things Jody and I do because we have set up certain boundaries because we don't want to be statistic. And sometimes it sounds a bit conservative that her and I, if I'm going to meet somebody or if I'm, I'm going to meet a, a young lady at a coffee shop, there's a good chance I'm not going to. It's going to be in my office and there's going to be a secretary there. Not because I don't trust the ladies, but it's just because there are so many stats, you guys. Why do I want to mess with it? Right? And she's the same. We just try and be on guard in our marriage. Not because we're full of jealousy and don't trust one another, because this is something that we do to build into our marriage. And it's the same thing here as Nehemiah is looking and he's posting guards to build into the atmosphere, into the spiritual dynamic of the people of, of Jerusalem here. He guards her jealous, jealously and he will present her as pure, white, and blameless. That's also my job as a husband is that I'm hoping that when I meet Christ, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, which also includes that I've also helped in the character development of my wife. So all of a sudden, when you're in my office and you're wondering why you shouldn't have this premarital uh, relationship, physically, I mean, with your wife or husband-to-be, because there's such a beautiful picture of Christ in the church, of Christ looking out for the church, and the church so desiring to connect with the head, the body, or with the head, Jesus Christ. There's such a beautiful connection there. Jesus says in uh, Corinthians I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
Well, Paul's writing this. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. How would our marriages change, you guys, if we would start approaching our mates, hoping to present them pure and blameless before Jesus Christ, helping them become the mom, become the husband, become you know, the, the, the dad, become the wife that they can be. Imagine that. So Nehemiah puts out guards at the posts. But it's interesting because as we've read already, there's this gradual process in lowering, lowering the temperature or there's this backsliding. And I want you to know that you don't wake up in the morning and decide to back, backslide. Also, like the stats out there, nobody wakes up in the morning going, hmm, I think I'm going to commit adultery. This is a great day for adultery. What do you think? Yeah, good. No, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a backsliding. It's a, what is happening slowly. And this stuff is happening just to somebody that very dear to me just lately. And now hindsight is going, wow, I was having a really cool connection, a really good friendship with this person. And all of a sudden it went way too far. But it didn't happen overnight. It was over a couple of years. A gradual slide. It's actually, as somebody else has pointed out, it's a, ca- it's a case of slide instead of decide. You slide into it. You don't decide into it. Remember back to chapter 9, the Israelites had made a covenant with affixed signatures that they would not neglect the house of God, that they would tithe and give offerings, that they would be generous, and that they would not be unequally uh, yoked in marriage. They would set themselves apart. That's 9 and 10. Now in 13, he's saying the same thing. So there's been this total gradual slide. Psalm 1 talks about that. It's a great psalm, which I've mentioned before. But it talks about, blessed is a man who does not walk, who does not stand, and who does not sit in the counsel of the ungodly. And there's this whole progression of something that's tempting to you, and you're walking by it, and you kind of see what you, uh, and you, but you keep walking. But you've noticed the temptation, you've noticed something that has caught your eye. And it's a big deal that if all of a sudden I see what's caught my eye, I know I shouldn't have, and all of a sudden I stop. And I consider it. And then finally, it's giving the progression of I not only walk by it, stand, but now I sit in the seat of mockers. I've made up my mind to be a part of it. But you see a beautiful picture of the transgression of it. We need to have people posted. We need to have um, guards at the gates. The Ammonites and the Moabites were descendants, get this, the Ammonites and the Moabites were descendants of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters when they got him drunk. This is in the Bible, okay? And to me, this also shows the authenticity of the Bible. If this was a bunch of baloney, why would they have such gross stories in here? Like there's some stories in here you're going, oh my goodness, because it's historical. This is what happened. I love that. To me, it just builds up the authority of, of Scripture for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Ammonites here and the Moabites, descendants of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters when they got him drunk. Uh, Genesis 19, 30 to 38, they constantly made the Moabites and the Ammonites, they constantly made Israel stumble, uh, especially when they mixed with them. Their intent was never to honor God. They wanted to suck them away from their God. 
But how about today? Is there a chance that there's people within us or perhaps there's something within your heart uh, that we're not setting ourselves apart? Is there a chance that there's some people sitting among us that aren't interested in building one another up? In fact, they might even be so far as to wanting to tear us apart, not encourage us, but discourage us. Is there a chance? Do we have Christians among us who still think it's all about me, 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 and do not trust Christ or submit to what he has for us? Warren Wiersbe says, these kind of folks, they want the blessings of God, but they don't want the obligations, and their appetite is still for things of whatever the world has to offer. So they want the blessing of God, but they don't want to follow in discipleship. So for me, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna start to meddle here. Uh, how about even when it comes to our church and our church attendance here, our commitment to one another? It's just not this building; it's to each other. You ever think of the impact when somebody really tritely treats church, doesn't come, and all of a sudden goes, "Yeah, I'm tired of the music here. I'm gonna go to that happening church over there," or Steve's gotten so boring and and it's time to move on, right? And all of a sudden, we just lightly or tritely tread upon it and thinking that, wait a second, you're actually removing yourself from part of this body. It's not just keeping this seat warm. It's your giftedness, your ministry, your relationship that's interconnected here. You ever think about that? It's a big deal when people move on. And there's times, obviously, to move on, but there's a lot of times to sit down and stay and get involved. It seems to me that there is a generational disease of entitlement these days. Just take a look around. I'm sorry, adolescents, but wow, there's quite the disease of entitlement going on. And I think it's crept into our churches too. When preacher says something you don't really like or the music's not quite right or the sound's too high or this and that, it's easy to just go, yeah. And we don't call it entitlement, but what is it? When it's all about me and my needs, my desires. That's what was happening here. In Nehemiah's account, we see that the Jews had become lazy and careless in a few areas. They still continued to intermarry with Ammonites and Moabites, which had tripped them up so many times. And he recognizes when he's out and about, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of kids playing that look all sorts, they look very different, and all of a sudden they're speaking all sorts of different languages. What's the big deal of that? They don't know the language of the law of the Bible. They're never going to learn it. Right? You've got to remember context here, too, at this point in history. But they're never going to learn it at this point. Intermarriage also brought interreligion. So they, if you marry somebody who worships a different deity, you're begging for family problems. Like I said last week, if, if you're going to do stuff like that, realize that even if you're like the most amazing guy and the most amazing woman, marriage is still hard. It still takes a lot of work. So if you're going to mess with, I'm going to be Christian and this one's going to be something else, oh man, you're messing with stuff. And the Bible speaks quite clearly, don't, don't be unequally yoked to that kind of stuff. And I know there's testimonies within our congregation here of people that are so burdened daily because their husband or wife does not attend with them. 
So if they could give you that advice, they say, be careful who you're dating or be careful who you get together with. To go even further, uh, I'll peel back the onion here a bit for me and, um, me and Ken. As, as pastors, we're often called on to do weddings. And uh, we don't do unequally yoked weddings for a few reasons. So this is rough. So you have somebody that says they love the Jesus, and then, but this person's not a Christian. And we're going, oh my goodness. Why? For a few reasons. First of all, marriage is hard enough. Secondly, we are God's representative in a way, and when we pray for God's blessing on a marriage, so what God has joined together, let not man separate, why would we go against God's design for marriage and try and bless a union that he has already given a caution about? So for us, it's not because we don't like you or because there's a personality difference or anything like that. If you want us to take our job seriously, we are seeking to bring together two people that at first both love Jesus or both don't love Jesus. You know what I'm saying? But why in the world will we take one Jesus lover and one not Jesus lover? We're just going, and now you're asking for the blessing of God? Through us, it's, that stuff, boy, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of emotional thought process for us. It's not easy. And why is it not easy? Because what we read in scripture and we want to be guys of integrity. We want to actually, when we pray the blessing of God on this union, we want to mean it. If you can believe it, the priest Eliashib cleared out the room in the house of God and made it into a hotel room for Tobiah, his buddy, who was also related by marriage to some of Jerusalem's leaders. You can read 2 verse 19 on that one. So here, there was this intermarriage and a son-in-law was connected. So all along, the very enemies that were mocking them out, trying to stop this whole project, they actually have connections within the walls. You know how hard this is? It's hard enough to have enemies out there. How about having enemies right in here? How about when we're out there and we're taking it on the chin at work and at family, whatever, and we finally come here and we just need some refreshment, and all of a sudden all you hear is negativity and gossip and other garbage in here? That's not cool. But guess what? We're not perfect, are there, are we? Anybody who's perfect, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, good. Um, and that, that's a burden of mine, too, when people say a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, 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 we are. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we go forth and try and be hypocrites because as disciples of Christ, we are seeking God and we want to get tighter with him all the time. But we drop the ball, right? We all drop the ball. We all need Jesus. That's totally an amen. amen. Come on. But here in, in 13, verse 28, let me just read this quickly. One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. He's a son-in-law. And as you know, the good old saying is, blood flows thicker than water. So here, they're trying to do something incredible, trying to restore Jerusalem and trying to bring back uh, the religious affiliation and their commitment to God. And here they have people right among them that are short-circuiting the whole process.
They also, in verses uh, 10 to 11, they neglected to be generous. The Levites had to leave their posts of leading worship and, and leading what was going on in the temple. They had to leave that because nobody was feeding them anymore. They had to go to, their, to a regular job of uh, taking care of their fields and work because the people had stopped giving. The people had stopped giving. You see the cycle? Something stops over here and it affects everything. So there's a great reminder for us too. If you think you can get away with something, as in there's some sin or something that you're harboring, or there's a broken relationship among us here somewhere, and it's not a big deal to you, nuh-uh. We see it even right here. When somebody stops giving to the temple, then all of a sudden there's not decent worship in the temple anymore because all the priests have to go out. If all the priests go out, then who's going to take the offerings here? Wait a minute. Why bring the offerings? Because priests aren't there anyway then all of a sudden the whole worship center is being broken down. Modern Maturity Magazine recorded something saying, or somebody saying, the world is full of two kinds of people, the givers and the takers. The takers eat well, but the givers sleep well. I like that. I think we're both at different points in our lives. Definitely times where I've needed to receive and definitely times where I needed to give. But we also know that last week that the New Testament actually really doesn't teach tithing anymore as in giving 10%. But we did establish that the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ is so much greater than the law of give 10%. The grace and love that we experience from Jesus Christ is so much greater than the law that would it make us stingier? So if the law said give percent, 10%, but now we're not under the law. So I'm, I'm just going to give 5%. Does that make sense? So now I'm not teaching legalism. Please don't hear me at all saying that. Because I think there's even times where all of a sudden we've run into something and I can't give all that much. But on the whole, we are supposed to be marked by people of generosity. Why? Because who is generous? God. And we're his people. So I think it's lame that if after church we go to the pantry and we order this and this and that and then finally the bill comes and you don't leave a tip. That's embarrassing because the people of God should be leaving tips. Right? No amens there. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But so often church people are known as a stingy crowd when it comes to eating. That shouldn't be. If you can't afford to leave a tip, don't go out. (laughs) that's quiet (laughs) unless i take you out that's right Uh, we've also established that 100 percent of what we have is not ours but god's so when we have this 10 percent rule in our heads we think here god here's 10 percent now i get 90 percent to blow you know but if we start looking at it like 100% is God's, then yeah, obviously he wants, he, he wants to take care of our needs. We've got to pay our bills. We've got to take care of our kids and our wife and have a good time to the glory of God. But also try at the beginning of the month to say, all right, I want to give this stuff away. I'm going to give this to the church. And I see my brother over there. He's having a rough time eating his rent. Bam, it's Christmas. Let's get a couple shoe boxes. Let's buy a goat for some kid in Africa. Whatever. And I've had that chat with my kid too. Sometimes when it's just like he wants something again, I'm going, well, where am I supposed to take it away from? Because there's these things that we have to pay. And son, I, I also, I want to give to the church and I, I want to be also, have a bit of cash on hand just all of a sudden, bam. Yeah, here you go. You know, it's kind of fun to give that way. 
It's important to be generous because our God is generous. It's interesting because, again, how I said that one thing affects another. In my second semester of seminary, and seminary sounds like cemetery for a reason, and there I was not enjoying my first semester at all. It was so boring. And uh, I'm, I was half praying, one eye closed, one eye open. Oh, God, I can't afford to come back. I've run out of money. Oh, woe is me. I'm going, oh, thank you. I'm so tired of this, right? And my marks were lame, and I, eh, I was just wasn't enjoying it all that much. I go to my, uh, I'm not sure if it was with, even within that week, I go to my mailbox, I open up my mailbox, I take out an envelope. There's enough cash in that envelope for the whole next semester. <laughs> I totally want to quit, right? So I was, ah, okay, obviously the Lord wants me here. So I continue on. I went home for Christmas, back to Manitoba, hung out with my mama and my family, had a great old time. I came back, you guys, and my attitude went up, my marks went up, everything about my experience went up, and then all of a sudden, bam, I had three job offers in, I think, one week. I did not put my name out. I turned one down, I got another job offer, and one of those offers was White Rock Community Church. I don't know, that's kind of cool, right? Because here I am, I didn't want to go back, had no money. God says, here's some money, I obey, my attitude goes up, and all of a sudden, here's a couple jobs. Kind of neat how God takes care of stuff. But also, it was interesting because the person that gave was actually three people. It was a, a, a single dad and his two kids that thought of good old Pastor Steve because I used to uh, preach at their church. And they gave of themselves. And if they had not listened to the prompting of Jesus Christ, who knows if I'd be here, right? So it's really neat how the faithfulness of even a 10-year-old little girl was important. You're important. You're important to me. I'm important to you. We're important to each other. They also no longer paid attention to the Sabbath. We don't use that much anymore, but we kind of use... Uh, Sunday a Sabbath. My mama's awesome. She wouldn't even do really laundry. If I was a bit of a schlump and I forgot that I had to have my volleyball uniform for Monday morning, she would actually stay up till about midnight to do my laundry because she didn't want to mess with the Sabbath. You know, and she's not legalistic that way, but it was kind of cute because she was really trying to, to, to show her boys that, you know, Sunday is, is a day of rest of chilling out, of being with friends, of taking it easy, and thinking about God's stuff. Don't be busy. In fact, we had an intern here not that long ago, Nathan Freeman, who is smart as a whip. And this guy, every Sunday, he always loitered. He always wanted to be invited out. And I'd think, wow, you're, you're in Trinity Western University. Surely you've got uh, lots of homework. And he did have lots of homework, but he would never do his homework on Sunday, even if he had exam Monday. It was crazy because he had this principle, I'm going to enjoy the Lord and enjoy God's people on Sunday. So he worked his butt off Saturday, Monday, whatever. It's kind of a neat principle. But God has set the example when he rested from creation, right? So if God has to take a breather, we probably should too, or chose to take a breather. He knows how quickly we forget, so he instituted a day to slow down and think about him. Let's be honest, it's so easy to forget God, and isn't it? When things are going well, when the business is going great, marriage is great, kids are doing so well, all of a sudden, oh yeah, God, that's right. It's really easy to forget, and the Israelites did it all the time, and so do you, and so do I. Easy to forget, so he's instituted today to chill out, think, and enjoy, and reflect, and remember. He knows that if we don't rest, we're going to burn out, and we're going to miss out on life. If we don't take a break, we will break. 
Mark Buchanan writes, in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is sloth, he says. But without rest, we miss the rest we miss the rest of God, the rest that he invites us to enter more fully so that he might, we might know him more deeply. Be still and know that I am God, he says. Some of, the, some of this knowing is never pursued, only received, and for that, we need to be still. Sabbath is both a day and an attitude to nurture stillness. It's a both time on a calendar and a disposition of the heart. It's a day we enter, but just as much a way we see things. Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the rest of God, the things of God's nature and presence we miss in our busyness. It's important to take a day out. Sabbath creates time to reflect and to hear from God. So last point here, what causes the lowering of our temperature? What causes backsliding? What causes our thermostat to not work properly? So the true cause of backsliding, it's important to remember that Nehemiah was only gone about one year. And this shows how quickly we're prone to wander away. So he's only gone about one year in Nehemiah 9, 10, also into 13, and already everything's in shambles. Well, first of all, Isaiah says, all, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? Is we're all prone to be messed up. We're all prone to follow our own way. It's easy to just trust ourselves and no longer trust God. So it's easy to forget. And number two, Alvin Douglas goes on to write this stuff. Uh, we have a failure to maintain a quiet time. Now, I'm not going to be all religious here and say you have to have every so often, but I'm just saying it is really important to have times, probably daily, but whatever, every second day, a few times a week, to connect with the Almighty God, because you have all sorts of stuff feeding in through your eyes, through your ears, every kind of uh, senses out there, our culture is feeding us. Where are you getting built in when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? You got to have a quiet time. You got to have time to pray, to chat, and to receive from God. You have to have time to read the Word of God. In fact, uh, Timothy 2.15 is what we actually started this sermon series with. Second uh, Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who rightly handles the word of truth, the Bible. Also, another way to backslide is failure to attend church or pay attention to the Sabbath. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't let, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching, capital D. He's coming back. So encourage each other, get together, remind each other of that. Life's hard, let's get together. It's so awesome when also we hear each other's stories and realize that you're struggling with some of the same stuff I am. It's lame to be alone, don't you think? We need each other. We need each other. The French agnostic Voltaire, not sure if he's totally true on this one, but years ago, this Voltaire said, if you, ha- if you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. Interesting, eh? He figures that if we get rid of Sunday, if we get people so busy that they don't really think about resting and think about God, we nailed Christianity. Good thought. Also, failure to obey the Holy Spirit, we see in, 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 in Ephesians 4, verse 30. So if there's something that God is calling you to or he did in the past and you haven't done it, there's a good chance that there's a blip 
in your flow with God. Because obedience is a big deal. If God is even asking you to do the smallest thing, go for it. Step out in obedience. And I think you'll see bigger and bigger things happen. Failure to be generous. I think that's, as a, uh, that's a mark of a disciple. To be generous and help each other out. Failure uh, to walk in the light. Failure to give God glory and failure to give God thanks. So question for you. What does your thermostat read today? What if I could have a look or if God could have a look the inside of your heart and see that thermometer that's plugged in there? What's it at? What's the temperature? When's the last time you cleaned out your furnace? Is the blower working? Hot, cold, or lukewarm? The weather changes every day and so does the temperature. It cannot simply stay the exact same every day. And the temperature of our hearts is no different. We cannot maintain a temperature. Either we're growing to be more fond of Christ and becoming more like him, warmer to his leadings, or we're not. And a little commercial break here. That doesn't mean you don't struggle. Gee whiz, there's times where I felt like connected to God, like I'm just firing all cylinders. And there's other times where, boy, I need your help. And I think if we're honest, we're all like that. So where's your thermostat set at? Is it in healthy condition? And I think we've gone over a number of these things that even the good old Israelites who heard it just a year before backslid and no longer paid attention to the little things in life and suddenly there was a big chaos in their spiritual temperature. Where's your temperature? Take some time this morning to take some inventory of the temperature and maybe some of the reasons why it might be lukewarm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. And I ask in Jesus' name that you would help us, Lord, to be people of rest, people of generosity, people that set ourselves apart, people that have beautiful marriages that are growing. Father, I would just ask that we would be people of the word of God, that we would take it seriously and that we would continue to ask ourselves this question, where stands it written? Because Lord, we want to be obedient and we want to move toward you every day of our life, Lord, until the day you return. So this morning I ask that you remind us once again how much we need you and how much we need each other. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in a powerful name. Amen.